I'm Krista Tippett. Today we continue our ongoing series, Repossessing Virtue, with wise voices from religion, science, industry, and the arts, drawing out fresh thinking on the moral and spiritual aspects of economic crisis. We made a list of our guests across the years who we thought might speak to this in fresh and compelling ways. Suffering is something that we tend to avoid. We, we shun it. If we ourselves are suffering, we feel humiliated. One of the things that should make us closer is our vulnerability. And yet we can feel so isolated rather than really together. It's a good moment to sit back and reflect on what's really valuable in our lives. And um, maybe riding the crest of the wave was exciting and exhilarating, but maybe it's, there's an advantage to being landed on the beach. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. This public radio podcast is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. I'm Kate Moose, managing producer of Speaking of Faith. This week, we bring you this rebroadcast of our March 2009 program on the impact of the economic crisis with reflections by eight familiar voices we find wise and compelling. I'm Krista Tippett. As the economy has faltered, we've grasped to understand what went wrong and how. But beneath economic explanations and remedies, these questions compel us to other kinds of reflection on qualities of human nature that ultimately determine economies and markets, on qualities of humanity that we want to cultivate in ourselves and our children. How will we redefine what matters in this moment and who will we be for each other? This hour, we draw out eight wise, diverse voices on spiritual and moral aspects of living in and beyond economic crisis. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, we continue our ongoing series, Repossessing Virtue, with wise voices from religion, science, industry, and the arts. A hundred million people had been freshly thrust into poverty as a result of the crisis that we're going through. Now, any human being who just has a normal sensitivity to what's going on, you know, you're just torn by things like this. Suffering is something that we tend to avoid. We, we shun it. If we ourselves are suffering, we feel humiliated. One of the things that should make us closer is our vulnerability. And yet we can feel so isolated rather than really together. It's a good moment to sit back and reflect on what's really valuable in our lives and what's lasting. And um, maybe riding the crest of the wave was exciting and exhilarating, but maybe it's, there's an advantage to being landed on the beach. Whenever you lose dreams, that's grief, that's grieving. And I think when it's happening collectively, um, there is a collective anxiety, a collective depression uh, happening in our communities. But I mean, that's the bad news. The good news is that if you understand those triggers to the stress response, then you can stand back and say, okay, what can I do about it? As global economic crisis began to unfold this past fall, my producers and I wanted to respond immediately in our way. We began to conduct an online conversation parallel to but distinct from our culture's more sustained focus on economic scenarios. For in each of our lives, whoever we are, very personal scenarios are unfolding that confront us with core questions of what matters to us and sustains us. We made a list of our guests across the years who we thought might speak to this in fresh and compelling ways. Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, who we'll hear first, is a physician whose own experience of chronic illness has shaped her philosophy of healing and medical education. She's also the author of beloved books about medicine and life, Kitchen Table Wisdom, and My Grandfather's Blessings. We spoke with her at home by telephone and posed a few questions that guide all the reflections of this hour. What are you doing now that is different? What moral and spiritual resources, what virtues are you drawing on? And do you consider this economic moment to be a moral or spiritual crisis? 
I consider life a moral crisis. <laughs> life itself is a spiritual crisis. But the thing that interests me about this are the questions that are coming up in the minds of people. They're questions like this. What can be trusted? What can be trusted? What will sustain me? What do I really need in order to live? Right? These are questions that you ask yourself almost on a daily basis these days because of the economy. But what's so interesting to me is these are profoundly spiritual questions. These are questions one asks to oneself just before you initiate a spiritual search. What can be trusted? What will sustain me? What do I really need in order to live? And if you follow these kinds of questions out, they lead us to a deeper, more passionate, better way of living and a much deeper connection to a larger reality. It's an opportunity to live better, to live more consciously and according to your own genuine values, not the values of the culture. The culture tells me in order to live, I need to have 43 lipsticks and 10 face creams and no wrinkles, right? But those things cost a lot of money. And because I can't buy them now in a knee-jerk way, I find myself recognizing I really don't need them. I need something else. And I think that the economy is a pointing finger to a spiritual emptiness that has been among us for a long time and that we have an opportunity to fill it now. And that's very, very exciting stuff. And, you know, in just thinking about all of this, money, money itself, physical money, densest form of human energy, that's what money is, stored energy. Now, energy follows belief. The economy is based, I believe, not on scientific laws as much, but on people's beliefs. You know, what, what is a good life? What is a good life? The answer to that drives an economy. Or other such questions or thoughts or beliefs. I believe that I'm alone, and therefore I have to have something to be with me, to, to take care of me. I, I'm not safe. My whole life is about getting safe. And so I, I spend money or, or don't spend money based on these kinds of beliefs. So another way of saying that is we got into this place because of a story. A story we tell ourselves about ourselves, about other people, about the world, that the, the goal in life is, is comfort, which is, I, I think, one of the most dangerous stories in the whole world, by the way. But the opportunity here is to change the story. I'm 70 years old, and... You know, people walk around me and say things like this. Um, well, you just sort of ride it out. You know, eventually it'll come back. The economy will come back. It always does. And uh, it's just a matter of time. And, you know, that's true uh, for people who are younger than I am. <laughs> but by the time the economy comes back, I probably won't be here. <laughs> so, you know, these are these are major issues for people of my age, you know, um, it confronts us even more acutely because we don't have the time for this thing to recover itself on, on a financial level. But, you know, what am I doing differently? These, these questions of the foundation of my life are with me in the supermarket, which is very different than it was two years ago. Uh, you know, it's, it's what do we sail our boats by? What's the star that, that guides our boat? Is it fear or is it something else? And there's a wonderful quote which goes like this. Often you can see the light from your star most clearly after it has grown dark. 
and it's grown dark. And a lot of people have discovered they're not sailing their boat by anything. And they might notice that there is a star that they want to follow. And I think that's the opportunity. Rachel Naomi Remen. Prabhu Guptara is experiencing the economic downturn from one of the world's largest banks in Switzerland. Indian-born, he is spiritually a Hindu, he says, and a follower of Jesus. Several years ago on this program, Prabhu Guptara discussed a research project he conducted called The Gods of Business. He found that the world's major religious traditions had by and large failed to equip their followers with practical ethics that found expression in the workplace. This failure, as he sees it, has now come full circle. It was a chain of things, one after the other, which has uh, caused the problems that we're in. So at every point, it might have acted as a safeguard if people had, in fact, applied their moral sense to what they were doing. But, of course, the problem has been uh, globally in, in, in all cultures, you know, over the last 20 years or so, that we have become more and more greedy individually and at the same time more and more frightened individually. On the one hand, we can make huge amounts of money if you're, you know, if you're reasonably intelligent and uh, reasonably well-educated and happen to be in the right place, as it were, we can make huge amounts of money. On the other hand, if we're not well-educated or if we happen not to be in the right place, um, we make nothing. And so the, the problem is that we've created the global system in which we have a choice between having a lot and having nothing. Whereas traditionally, you know, you went to your farm, you did your base, and of course you waited for the rains, but uh, uh, really at the end of the day, you got something. According to World Bank figures, a hundred million people had been freshly thrust into poverty as a result of the crisis they'd be going through. And that was already the case eight months ago or whatever it was when the figures were released. Now, any human being who just has a normal sensitivity to what's going on, you know, how do you cope with knowing that the system which was beginning to rescue people out of poverty has actually thrust them back into poverty? Now, if you're aware of these kinds of things and you're just normally humanly sensitive, you know, you're just torn by things like this. And you need to have some supernatural point of reference which keeps your mind and heart calm and enables you to act sensibly or at least halfway sensibly in, in the kind of situation in which we are. Now, I'm a Hindu follower of Jesus. I look to two sources. One is to um, Jesus personally, as it were, to Jesus the person, and secondly, uh, to the Bible. And these are the two sources to which I go to give me the uh, peace of mind, as I say, in terms of my relationship with God. But even if you kept very simple things in mind, they would make a lot of difference. Uh, for example, the keeping of the Sabbath. What is the keeping of the Sabbath all about? It is saying, I could work, I could be productive on this day, but I deliberately choose not to be productive on this day so that I can orient myself to something other than what is material. And if our society just took that very simple, one simple thing uh, into account, if it took the time every seventh day to just relax, stop rushing around, and do something completely different, whether it's going for a walk on the beach, whether it's spending time with friends, whether it's listening to music, or whatever else, instead of filling our lives with stress and with material uh, preoccupations as we do. And there are very simple principles given there by which we can release ourselves from the materialism of our society. Hear more in-depth conversations with Prabhu Guptara and all the guests in this program at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, more of our ongoing series, Repossessing Virtue. My producers and I have been calling up wise guests from past programs and asking them to reflect on moral and spiritual aspects of living in and beyond economic crisis. Sharon Salzberg, who we'll hear next, is a Buddhist teacher and author 
one of the people who helped bring Buddhist meditation to the U.S. in the 1970s. She is finding that Buddhist teaching on suffering, suffering as an elemental aspect of human reality, sheds a helpful light on our common economic present. She finds in this an edifying contrast to some of the default analysis of crisis that Western culture provides. My feeling about this culture, this society in general, is that we've been one where suffering is something that we tend to avoid. We we shun it. If we ourselves are suffering, we feel humiliated, not just in pain, but actually humiliated, like we should have been able to control it. Someone else is suffering, we tend to want to put them away, you know, aside so that we're not seeing them really directly. And, and that is so hurtful to all of us. And so I think this is a time where the suffering is so blatant, the fear is so palpable, the uncertainty is so strong that we're having to confront some very serious underlying issues. I mean, I think certainly, of course, I come from my own uh, life story, you know, where there were so many uh, secrets in my family. And so I experienced not only the pain of the the conflict or the loss or or the situation, but also that terrible kind of ambient silence that surrounded it, that very strange kind of silence. And and so I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside. And, And it's something I've observed in, you know, many of my students and friends and companions, you know, along the way as well. And, and so I think it, it is, in many ways, it's a kind of cultural norm that there's really a tremendous burden on all of us because, after all, one of the things that should make us closer is our vulnerability. It's our vulnerability to, to change, to having circumstance alter and shift, and, and yet we can feel so isolated rather than really together, especially in a time like Uh, we're experiencing now where people, you know, have felt invulnerable to change. But anyone who really looks deeply into life knows that life can change on a dime. You know, you get one phone call and it's a different life. And and that is something that should have us determined to help one another and and help us experience our closeness to one another because it's true for all of us. teaches us that we rise and fall together and that, you know, this isn't just a kind of religious or spiritual perspective, but economics shows us this and epidemiology shows us this and environmental awareness shows us this, that there's no longer any kind of there over there that won't affect us over here. Then as we look for solutions in our own personal lives or as a society, those solutions need to reflect that deeper understanding. And then uh, we can be so impatient and so judgmental of ourselves and scornful of others. And, and we need to just, like, take a breath, you know, and, and uh, recognize that many people are being driven by fear, that we need to help ourselves and others go underneath that fear. And I think the very practical methods, certainly that I rely on, that are the core of my own life have to do with meditation. It's being able to take that breath and having a sense of who I am apart from what I own or, or you know, the uh, kinds of experiences that I have and, and to return to that more essential sense of myself and in very simple ways, you know, breathing, being aware of my body, being, knowing what I'm feeling as I'm feeling. You know, so much of us struggle because we get very frightened or very angry and we hardly even know it. We're so disconnected and, you know, 15 consequential actions later, we've already sent that email and we go, ooh, I guess I was angry. So to really be in touch with ourselves is, is a tremendous gift and, and that's what meditation, you know, certainly has given me. And uh, I actually find myself trying to be more generous, which seems a little counterintuitive, <laughs> except that I think uh, it doesn't have to be some vast amount. It doesn't even have to be material. But the the ideas of generosity and, and the beauty of generosity has become much more pronounced in my everyday life, whether it's being willing to smile at somebody or listen to somebody in the elevator who's speaking, which is not a very New York thing to do, but lately people have been doing that, to respond when someone's reaching out, to have generosity of the spirit as well as material generosity, even if it's a small amount, um, 
because it helps me remember that we are all in this together, so to speak. And, and certainly there's a certain element of restraint in terms of, of buying and shopping, you know, and, and uh, not that I ever was, you know, wild in, in doing that, but um, there's a consciousness, but I, I don't feel it as like restriction or fear or holding back. I'd rather translate whatever sense of abundance I do have into more generosity and, and reaching out to others. Sharon Salzberg. Martin Marty is a preeminent religious historian. He considers the moral and spiritual aspects of economic crisis as a public theologian. He's the author of many books. His current project is on the nature of trust and what it takes to build cultures of trust. Martin Marty sees the current economic downturn as the end of a century of two competing visions of social order, a socialist ideology which regulated industry by suppressing freedom, and a free market ideology that, when taken to an extreme, suppressed public concern for the other. All crises are moral crises. That is, if we use the word crisis, which it relates to the word judgment, we are making a judgment that things have gotten out of hand, and that's true in the case of every war, no matter how righteous it may look, of every economic downturn as drastic as this, every cultural change. Yes, it's a crisis, and uh, it has a moral dimension because we have to reach for every kind of resource. If we reach only for the economic, we won't get very far because we had everything figured out economically and it didn't work because the moral shortcomings. If I can, I'm going to bring in a line from Christian theology, which I think by analogy could uh, inform a lot. In the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament, uh, a simple phrase, we are members one of another. Now, this is written to people who have a religious commitment uh, that makes them members one of another. But I think that you can, without limiting this appeal to agnostics and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and anybody else in America, you can carry it over and say, uh, in the political order, we are also, quote, members one of another, and we pretended we weren't. And that's where I think the great immorality lay, that we were on our own. All political groups, all economic groups were acting that way. I once heard somebody say, he's a self-made man and he worships his creator. And that's the highest form of idolatry and that's immoral. All my life, I have turned and still turn and commanded others to turn to sustained friendships. I look to my dearest friends, some of them of 10-year note and some of 60-year note, uh, as people who have been through a lot of things that I've been through, and uh, they endure in different ways. I now have uh, friends whose spouse have Alzheimer's and so on. Uh, we need each other more than ever. And they give us lessons. So I just can't say enough about that. And I think there's where you can, again, rebuild trust and avoid some of these things. Um, I make a distinction between, for example, famous people and celebrities. Celebrities have clacks, and people tell them it's all fine. And I think a lot of the CEOs had boards that were clacks. You uh, appoint this person and give them a huge salary, huge bonus, and sort of fall down and worship them until it all falls down. Friendship is different. Uh, a friend can say, I'll use my name in it, come on, Marty, get off your high horse. This time you went too far. Or, uh, boy, I can see you're really down. Uh, can I help you out of this along the way? I also uh, look, of course, I'm in the Christian tradition, and I look for a great deal in, in the Scripture. And here I'll do a highly condensed version with, with thanks to theologian of some years ago, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, in his book, The Irony of American History. I think if there's any word of wisdom that I turn to is when he says, in all human action, good action, investing, starting companies, employing people, uh, using your head, knowing where to go, what to listen to, what to do, um, you become an agent, an actor. And when you do there are four things that you do 
that will always go partly wrong. You think you're virtuous. We all thought we were. We're that nation that's virtuous and can start the wars we want to. And we find that there's just enough vice in us that it compromises it. We think we're powerful, biggest army in the world, biggest economy in the world. And now we're on our rumps. We can't end the wars and we don't have an economy. Um, we thought that we were wise, and now we find that we were foolish in what we were teaching new generations and how we set things up. And I think I find that uh, so consistently in the scriptures, but I also find it in in philosophers, in Marcus Aurelius, and many others that I have to dust off the shelves to look at again. Um, so I think it's a good time to get out old texts, and I'm not against getting out Adam Smith and John Calvin and other putative inventors of capitalism along the way, alongside the Aristotles and the James Madisons and the others who've taught us secularly what I believe religiously, that we are members one of another. Martin Marty was actually the first of more than two dozen people we've called up on the phone for this Repossessing Virtue series. And there are different ways for you to hear these voices as we continue to gather them. We're posting new interviews on our staff blog, SOF Observed, along with the backstory of each. We've also created a special website featuring all the interviews in one place. Listen to fuller conversations with the guests in this program and explore other voices, including an evangelical minister and a secular humanist, an economics professor and a poet. Find links to all this and more at speakingoffaith.org. After a short break, other fresh and bracing approaches to economic crisis, scientist of stress Esther Sternberg, Chinese-American novelist Anshi Min, urban environmentalist Majora Carter, and Armenian Orthodox theologian and gardener Vigen Guroyan. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness, online at loveandforgive.org. And by Gather.com, the social network where people can make new friends who share their interests. You can meet people talking about faith at speakingoffaith.gather.com. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas— I'm Krista Tippett. Today we continue our ongoing series, Repossessing Virtue, with wise voices from religion, science, industry, and the arts, drawing out fresh thinking on the moral and spiritual aspects of economic crisis. My producers and I have developed this as an online conversation, a kind of parallel conversation to our culture's more sustained focus on economic and political analysis. We made a list of our guests across the years who we thought might offer fresh and compelling wisdom. We called them up at home and spoke with them by telephone. Esther Sternberg, who you'll hear next, is an immunologist who works at the intersection of physiological health and the emotions. She's currently studying the neurobiological effects of place and its impact on our sense of well-being. We asked her the same three questions that guided all the reflections of this hour— What are you doing now that is different? What moral and spiritual resources, what virtues are you drawing on? Do you consider this economic moment to be a moral or spiritual crisis? I I really don't consider it a moral or a spiritual crisis. I view it more in a biological sense, or at least my solutions to it or how to deal with it come from the biology. I think when you look at look at the numbers of people who are feeling stressed over this crisis, the American Psychological Association released numbers saying that eight out of ten Americans surveyed felt stress and anxiety over the uh, economic crisis, and that's of course not surprising because it touches us all. Uh, that's almost as high, but not as quite as high as the uh, numbers feeling stress and anxiety after 9/11. And when you think about it, I mean, the situations are are quite different, but there are similarities, and there are similarities that trigger the biological stress response. So what we're going through now is really a perfect storm of triggers that are very powerful 
um, uh, stimuli to that biological stress response. We're experiencing rapid change, uncertainty, and uncontrollability. And those three things turn on the brain's stress response uh, so that we are pumping out these stress hormones and nerve chemicals that make us feel all those things that we feel when we're stressed. Um, so what are the symptoms? We feel our heart beating fast. We feel anxious. We can't sleep. We, we worry, of course, about all the things that could happen, that might happen. We don't know about our jobs. We have all this uncertainty. And it can turn into depression. It can uh, certainly affect our moods. Another thing that happens during this kind of stressful situation, as opposed to, for example, when a physical event happens like 9-11 or, or just, uh, you know, back it up a little bit if there's a, a huge snowstorm and, and the whole community is affected. What happens in those situations is people come together, and that's a very important coping mechanism. I think what may be happening to a certain extent here is that there is a stigma to losing your house and losing money, losing your job, and so there's social isolation. And that just amplifies and contributes more to the stress um, and anxiety and depression. There's also a... Um, I was talking to an economist recently who said we're all going to have to go down a notch in our standard of living. Um, you know, it, it used to be that everybody imagined that we're just going to continue staying at the standard of living we're at or else increasing, and all of a sudden now we have to reverse our, our expectations. So there's there's a loss when, whenever you lose dreams, in, and, and that's that's grief, that's grieving. Um, and I think when, when when it's happening collectively, um, there is a collective anxiety, a collective depression uh, happening in our communities and in our society. But, I mean, that's the bad news. The good news is that if you understand those triggers to the stress response, um, then you can stand back and say, okay, what can I do about it? So if we break down those, those points that I made before, that we're, we're going through this period of uncontrollability, uncertainty, rapid change, and social isolation, there is something we can do about each of those things. So um, gaining control over a situation is a very potent way of reducing the stress response. Now, you might say, well, uh, you know, I don't know anything about, and I certainly don't know anything about, you know, how do we fix this economic situation, but you can stand back and look at your life and say, well, there are things that I can do to gain some control over this situation. Uh, you know, the first thing, if it's finances that's uh, at the core, uh, you know, seek help from an expert whom you trust. But apart from that, you can gain control over other parts of your life. You can stand back and say, okay, what is it about my life that I'm really worried about um, and what are the good things? I mean, that sounds like a very trite and simple thing to do, but, but it works. Um, and social support, social ties are a great way to counter stress. Um, altruism is another terrific way to counter stress and to help the situation. So even if you don't have the money yourself, you know, you can help a neighbor, you can, you know, take a neighbor out for a walk, you can bring some food over to a neighbor. Whatever it is that you can do um, will help the situation in a tiny little way, but you add up all those tiny little ways to help in a neighborhood, in a community, in a, you know, in a culture, and, and it adds up just as you add up all the, the stress and anxiety, and it adds up too, so you can begin to chip away at that. I thought of my father who came through the, the war and the Holocaust, and um, he was a very non-judgmental person, and he would often pull out the Bible from um, after dinner. He was not a very religious person. He didn't practice um, religion in, in an orthodox way at all, but he would pull out the Bible and read um, the Psalms, and it was the 23rd Psalm that, that I remember most. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I shall fear no evil. And I, I guess I go back to that, that um, you can come through terrible times, and you can find the strength, and sometimes the terrible times can actually give you the strength to move forward and, and actually to come up with creative new solutions in your own life and in the lives of others. And 
And I think where I'm finding the strength, because I was pretty nervous at the beginning of this. You know, you see the stock markets falling. You see your retirement disappearing. Um, and then I stood back and I thought, well, if he could have weathered it the way he did and weathered a much much worse period in in our history, I can do it too. And another way that he weathered it was he did a service for the public good. He was always committed to the public good. And um, and that gave me strength, and I decided, well, I'm in a position to help. Um, I can write about this. I can help other people. I can speak about it. Um, and, and I think, actually, that's when you contacted me, why I was so happy to be part of this. Whatever I can do to help others helps me weather it, too. Esther Sternberg. Chi Min is a novelist whose writing centers around the modern and ancient history of China. Her reaction to the economic present and American reactions to it are galvanized by her personal history of living through the most brutal era of Chinese communism under Chairman Mao, including several years she spent in a forced labor camp. I personally, I think I, I give you an example, I'm very different from my daughter, who was born in Chicago, I am an immigrant and a new American, and I came to this country in 1984. And I don't have American sense of entitlement. This is what I see. That's the root of the things. Because you, you just say, you know, in America, you say you're beautiful. You can do anything as long as you dream hard. Dream hard and work hard to get it. It's a very different concept. You, you, you tell your kids that you can do, be anything you want, but you don't emphasize um, your responsibility to make it happen. When I arrived in 1984, I remember I envied the homeless for two things. that First, they speak English. The second, right to work for yourself. And I was so grateful. I don't take my time every minute in America for granted because I feel that this is the first time I own my own life. This whole thing um, makes me even think more about life. Uh, and I think, it's, um, I think more of the life as a gift from God that they gave me and how I cherish it and how I should have gratitude because happiness is contentment. It's the sense that you have more than enough and that I don't have to be a victim of my circumstances. And I think I focus on what I can do instead of what I can do, what I lose. I focus on what I can do, which is to write. And that I am making good use of myself and of my life Nothing is more gratifying. You know, <laughs> where I came from, that we always, it's a culture thing that you spend below your means. And uh, I save, if I, I have zero income, I would have just um, prepared like a, six months ago. I said, okay, I don't see that I have any income. I would just tell my daughter that we prepare to live in a car. And we just be, I would just deal with it. I think people take the American dream the wrong way. You know, this culture encourages people to gamble. You don't think about consequences because everybody is doing it. American culture, we have flaws. It's, it's a very good time. I look at this situation as a very good moment. And I think for, for, for the next generation, next children, it's a strong bell. And, and I think we heard and then we begin the learning process. Timing cannot be better. An Chi Min. We've posted our more in-depth conversation with her and with all the guests in this program at speakingoffaith.org. 
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, as part of our ongoing series, Repossessing Virtue, we're drawing out wise perspective and fresh thinking from a spectrum of voices, past guests on this program, on the spiritual and moral challenge of living in and beyond economic crisis. Majora Carter helped pioneer the notion of social justice environmentalism when she founded Sustainable South Bronx. She didn't come at that work as a religious person or thinker, yet she draws her evolving sense of the moral aspects of economic crisis from what she learned as she grew to be a leader on ecological crisis. It's so interesting because when I first started doing this work, I assumed that it had nothing to do with morality or a moral crisis per se, because it was clear that we were already in one, but that wasn't what was going to make people move out of it. Like, you know, morally, we know that people shouldn't you know, be dying of starvation or of environmental abuses, or, you know, we shouldn't be damaging the earth the way that we do, but it still got damaged. You know, people got damaged. So for me, I really thought of it more as we could like sort of make the argument that this is an economic problem that we need to deal with, and it would be in our best economic interest to do it, then maybe some people would stand up and take notice. After really reading a lot about the the words and the work of, of Martin Luther King Jr. and recognizing that and, and Mandela, you know, and all Gandhi and all the greats and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, yeah, I realized that their quests were spiritual quests. For them, it was as much as understanding that oppression is as bad for the oppressor as it is for the oppressed. So that a huge part of our job is helping folks understand that their liberation is tied up in everyone else's, no matter how powerful they think they are. I'm trying to be much more joyful, deliberately so, you know, and, and take time to really appreciate all the we do have, all that I have, um, because I think that's what's going to help make the work much more joyous to begin with. You know, when we understand that, you know, we're not fighting a losing battle, when we understand that, you know, there are so many beautiful things that we need to be and feel encouraged by. You know, what I thought I'd actually never see in my lifetime. You know, America, you know, has its first black president, one that's actually talking about the green economy as something that we should aspire to. And that's something that we're going to do because we think it's cute. <laughs> and uh, I've seen not just, you know, parks develop where there were former dump sites, but I've seen people's lives change. And and I've seen how people, you know, many former convicts or many people who would like actually never had the, the um, understanding of people in their family actually even having jobs suddenly understanding that they could be really powerful and the fruits of their labor could really, could help a tree grow, could help their family survive. And so for me, I'm like, what do I have to be upset about? I heard a great saying not that long ago, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. (laughs) And uh, I think about that now because, you know, we all have so much wisdom. I mean, I look back at my life, you know, and I'm talking the life, you know, doing this work as an activist and urban strategist. And uh, all I could think is the tools have always been there. We've just not been comfortable and confident enough in our ability to help make things happen. And, you know, as a black woman, as you know, coming from you know, a really poor, challenged community, um, Knowing that I've got something to offer the world is a really, just my understanding that, you know, has been a tremendous source of power for me. And knowing that I've got something not, and I'm not always going to be on the receiving end, and that I actually do have something to give. And just giving it, that's where I get my strength. Majora Carter. And we end this program with the reflections of Vigen Garoyan. We spoke with him as he prepared for the Christian season of Lent, which he observes on the Eastern calendar of his Armenian Orthodox tradition. He is a theologian and also a master gardener, a college professor who writes about moral imagination in literature, politics, and everyday life. I wonder whether more of us couldn't have 
expected this to come upon us. And uh, therefore, it's not simply an economic uh, crisis. It's a crisis of imagination and moral imagination, among other things. Um, I'm an educator, aren't I? So I, I often think in, in terms of education. I would like to make mention of a, a, an essay that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote. It's an article entitled On the Choice of a Profession. And uh, when I first read it, it seemed to address directly uh, my experience at Loyola College, where in the 80s and early 90s, what was once a liberal college was educating most of its students in business education. And I, uh, in the theology department, was seeing those students because they were required to take theology. And I was concerned because I could see that uh, what was once a liberal arts education dedicated to bringing into the world broad human beings with vision was in fact narrowing their their vision um, in ways that they were likely to make choices which would not be good for themselves or others in the future. So I think there's been a failure of education here. But Stevenson wrote this at one point in, in his imaginary conversation with a banker friend. He said, um, my good fellow, give me a moment. I have not a moment to spare, says he. Why, I inquire. I must be banking, he replies. And what, I continue my interrogatory, is banking? Sir, says he, it is my business. Your business, I repeat, and what is a man's business? Why, cries the banker, a man's business is his duty. And then Stevenson goes on to observe about the conversation but this is a sort of answer that provokes reflection. Why is he a banker? I don't know that many of our students who were going through business education knew that why they were going through business education. I, I did bring these issues up, and um, more often than not, actually, in, in, in a course that I taught on theology and literature, and my, the point that I, I've made over several years with students was, I'm glad you're here. I happen to believe that uh, you ought to be reading good literature, because from literature you'll gain a much fuller uh, sense of, of life and all of its challenges, both moral and physical, and that uh, reading a novel is not like uh, reading a textbook, which is perfectly linear and which adds up, but life is uh, more uh, elliptical, and novels typify that. You, you may not be able to understand the first chapter of a novel until you get to the fifth chapter. You may not understand what happened in your life at the age of 20 until you reach the age of 40, but you'll be a lot better off for it in the long run if you're reflective and are able to learn the lessons from your past. Lent leads to the cross, and cross comes from, well, cross and crux come from the same, same Latin derivative. We are at a kind of crux. It's a good moment to ref sit back and reflect on what's really valuable in our lives and what's lasting. And um, maybe riding the crest of the wave was exciting and exhilarating, but maybe it's, it, there's an advantage to being landed on the beach. So Lent is a time of fasting, but it's not, not just a, a time of masochistic self-denial. <laughs> it, it's supposed to be a time in, in, in which you put some things to rest. You let go of some of these passions that have uh, disordered your life, that have uh, led to decisions and circumstances which, uh, which were not the best for you or people around you. And... Um, if we can take advantage of this moment to recognize that these things are ephemeral and that these passions can lead us uh, in the wrong directions, uh, that much the better, I, I suppose. And um, to recognize also that it's not without pain. But there's a spring, too. <laughs> in so much as you do live in a community, a lot can be learned and a lot can be added to your life. If you just take notice of those people that are uh, around you, 
upon whom you are dependent or depend upon you, talk to them. Live life with them. Vigen Garoyan. Earlier in this hour, you heard Rachel Naomi Remen, Prabhu Guptara, Sharon Salzberg, Martin Marty, Esther Sternberg, Anchi Min, and Majora Carter. During the past year, we've created a space for listeners' voices and stories to be told and heard online and on the air. We're calling it our first-person initiative. And for the next few months, through Ramadan, we'd like to invite our Muslim listeners to illustrate the complexity and diversity of the Muslim world, as it's often called, with your voices and stories. What do you find beautiful in Islam? What hopes, fears, and questions are on your mind as you ponder the future? Tell us how these things find expression in your daily life and in your religious practice, including the observance of Ramadan. Find the Share Your Story link on our homepage at speakingoffaith.org. The senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Scheck and Nancy Rosenbaum. Our technical director is John Scherf. Our online editor is Trent Gillis with web producer Andrew Dayton. Krista Tippett is the host of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Kate Moose, managing producer. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness, online at loveandforgive.org. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Sustainability coverage is supported in part by the Candida Sustainability Fund, furthering values that contribute to a healthy planet. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next week, join Krista as she contemplates the meaning of life with artist, explorer, and fly fisher James Prosek. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media.